At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. All right, guys, we have the one you've been waiting for, episode two with Steve Bartilla. Now, if you haven't heard episode 94, that's going to be the first half of this show. So Steve was awesome enough to come on for episode 94 and this episode for a great conversation on everything habitat and hunting. So in the first episode back in 94, we covered creating a property flow, how to make deer adapt to your property, a lot about sanctuaries and all the details there, how to hunt them, how to make them what to do with them, and that was just an awesome episode. I urge you guys to go back and hit 94 before you listen to this one. This one, we're going to finish out with Steve on his top three habitat and hunting strategies. So we dive into mock scrapes, hinge cut funnels, water holes, early, mid, and late season strategies, habitat and hunting sins and problem prevention, even scouting. You know, we're early in the season, it's still time to scout. In-season scouting can be one of the most beneficial things that we've talked about before. And Steve hammers at home here with us yet again. Just love listening to this guy, talking to this guy. And this episode is another treat for me, for Brian, for everybody who's listening. Just take some notes and uh, very happy to have you all here to wrap up the Steve Bartilla two-part series. We also talk about some social stress levels, some patterning bucks, during the rut, and how to make the shot happen versus not. So, guys, this episode is just great. Steve Bartilla, episode two, here it comes. Before that, 
I want to talk about anybody new to the podcast, check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. We have all of the links to our social media up there where you can see what we're doing day to day. We have all of our podcast episodes, more importantly, up there. Um, almost to 100, guys. Number 100 is going to be another bang-up episode, too. We have the gear up there, our land plan management services up there, uh, our journals up there, our Instagram stories up there. Everything you want to see is at HabitatPodcast.com. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. We'd really appreciate it. If you haven't left us a great review on iTunes, there's a link below in the show notes. Please check that out. If you leave us a great five-star review and write something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast 5-inch decal. So thank you to all that have done that. I'm sending out three more decals tonight. All right. So I want to thank our partners of the podcast. We have Morse Nursery. Morse has been on the podcast before, a partner of us in the past. Uh, Charlie Morse has been on two episodes. We are back on with Morse Nursery, and we are going to cover some great stuff coming up in some episodes here soon. What I want to cover tonight is the deer candy persimmon and the deer magnet persimmon. If you go to Morse Nursery's Facebook page, there are links on there to those catalog parts on their website for those two persimmons. Those are great October and November dropping self-pollinating persimmons that are very attractive. Uh, it's almost like your own little food plot falling off the tree. Um, I call, you know, mass trees and fruit trees self-food plots. They just keep giving. They're awesome. So check those out over at morsenursery.com or on their facebook.com slash morsenursery. There's a bunch of good stuff on their homepage there, including the links to their deer candy persimmon and their deer magnet persimmon. Thank you guys for checking that out. Next we have sound barrier hunting. You guys have heard us talk with Adam. Adam's been on, let's see here, it was episode 85. We sound concealment, how deer hear, you know, how they break down noises in the woods, certain things about how you can hear leaves crunching from 200 yards away in the woods if you're a deer. So check out Habitat Podcast 85 with Adam Lewis, but more importantly, check out sound barrier hunting. You will find all of their Buck Bumper and Buck Bumper Plus products on there, and that is soundbarrierhunting.com. We have a code for HP listeners. If you mention HP during checkout, you get 10% off and free shipping over at soundbarrierhunting.com. So, guys, what Adam has created is a soundproofing adhesive material to put all over your tree stands. I have it on my camera arm. I have it on my bow riser. Um, I have it where my seat folds down on my stands. Your climbing sticks in certain spots. Any one metal clang in the woods can send the buck that you're looking for over the next hill. So it's very important to treat your stuff for sound concealment and be very careful of that. And check it out at soundbarrierhunting.com. All right, I want to get right into the show here. Let's thank Packer Max Cultipackers, HuntWise, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Sound Barrier Hunting, Morse Nursery, Realtree United Country, Lake States Realty and Auction. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on. Let's get into it, guys, with Steve Bartilla, Episode 2. I'm kind of kind of modifying as we go here. I'm thinking, 
I know you got a, a, a book called Big Buck Secrets, and I think we might want to kind of modify that to maybe some habitat secrets throughout the deer season. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to long-windedly say would be, can you provide us with one example per season where, like, it was one of your habitat tricks? So maybe a habitat trick that would obviously sure. evolve into deer hunting for early, mid, and late season. Yeah. Um, early season, or I can tell you what the theme of it's going to be. You sure. want deer feeding on your property the entire season long. Well, guess what? You got to offer more. Generally speaking, you got to offer more than one food. Okay. A whitetail die every every single every single plant type out there goes through stages where it's more or less desirable to deer. Um, it has to do with their digestibility and their nutrient content. Um, cereal rye. You know what? While that's growing. When it's first growing rapidly, very, very nutritious, very, very easily to digest. Okay, now it's going, growing through the more, it's going, getting closer to maturity. It's not mature yet, but it's getting closer to maturity. Well, those cell walls are starting to harden. The nutrient content is coming down a little bit. It's not that big of a deal yet, but now it actually matures and it is brown. Oh man, that nutrient content is nowhere near as much. Nowhere, nowhere near as good. Soybeans are another really good one to look at. Um, White tails will hammer the heck out of those leaves while they're green and actively growing. But as soon as those soybean leaves start to turn yellow, the deer usage drops off hard. Until, and generally speaking, about that time of year. Oh, huh. Now the acorns are dropping, right? And apples are maturing, and a whole and uh, corn is starting. Well, no, forget about corn; it's not starting to harden yet. But there's a bunch of other attractive food sources that are available as well. Okay, along with all the greens and alfalfa out there, are still all good. But now you start getting later. Those beans start to dry, and at the same time, a few frosts go through, and now all of a sudden that alfalfa is sour. Those acorns have been cleaned up. Um, oh, wait a minute, those beans now look a lot better. And besides, they're dry now. I'm not going to be eating the green leaves. I'm going to be eating the pods and the beans themselves. Um, every Everything goes through various stages. So, early season, some really good draws. Uh, we'll talk, actually, I'm going to, break a myth right out the door, and that is everybody's got it in their heads that brassicas are a fantastic late-season food source, and they sure can be because a whole, but there's a whole bunch of members of the brassica family, and within those very different members, you can go ahead and breed a purple-top turnip to kick larger turnips, less greens. You can breed a purple top turnip to kick more greens, less turnip. You can breed them to be higher in starch content. You can breed them to be all sorts of things. Um, I actually, one of the things that worked out great for me is for four years, 
back in college, because I was on the five-and-a-half-year college plan, um, <laughs> I, I actually worked for Jake's Seed Company as a sunflower breeder's research technician, which meant for 90% of the year I was an overly paid migrant worker, but for 10% of the years I actually bred sunflowers. Wow. So I, I, I understand that you can, you can make these things dance in any darn way you want to show different traits. Okay? Yes. A lot of brassicas need those that frost to go ahead and get to turn their starches into sugars and bring them up from the roots into the leafy growth, but they all don't. Uh, really weird little, little secret is uh, um, Antler King's Honey Hole, which is a 100% brassica mix, is a really good early season draw. Because it has the strains in there that are desirable during early season. And the reason that I go ahead and gave you that long, stupid example is simply to show that, yes, you can't just sit there and, oh, brassicas are going to do this for you. Clover is going to do that for you. This No. A white clover can be bred for grazing. A white clover can be bred for haying. A white clover can be bred for a very high protein content, but at the cost of being very wimpy. What you want to do is you want to create a smorgasbord of, uh, of feeding options that are going to cover the entire length of season. Early season alfalfa is a heck of a draw, but it's also a hard uh, it's a hard crop to uh, <clears throat> hard crop to maintain to get established and maintain. It is not a good choice for an absentee landowner. Um, clover is a really good, the right white clovers very very good early season draw as well. A clover if you get down to an Iowa, a Missouri, an Illinois, an Ohio, an Indiana. Clover can actually, is one of the few plantings that, I mean, that can feed deer for you pretty much all year because they don't get the same levels of snows that we do up here. When our deer are, are done <clears throat> feeding on clover when there's, a, when there's a foot of snow, those deer down there, they're still pawing through that foot of snow because they know that snow is going to be gone another week anyway. Um, <clears throat> but alfalfa is a really great early season draw. Another really great early season draw are those same soybeans we talked about. The only difference is, is rather than uh, rather than plant them in early June, you're planting them on the 1st of July. So now, while all those other, and there's a risk involved in that, in that there's a reason that farmers plant in June, <laughs> um, May and June, depending on where they are. Um, you're planting in July. You're going to get less rains, but if you get that crop germinated, those first few weeks of season are going to be an absolute blast because all the neighboring soybeans are all brown and yellow, and yours are still nice and green, and that draws deer like crazy. Um, as I said, depending on the brassica mix, a brassica can be a good... Uh, can be a good early season, uh, can be a good early season draw as well. Um, switch more to mid-seasons. Now is when the soybeans and the corn 
are starting to come on. The problem with soybeans and corn to me, and please, if I forget, remind me to talk about top seeding and stuff too. Um, <clears throat> but the problem with soybeans and corn to me are they are your most expensive crops you could possibly plant for deer food. Um, <clears throat> but they are tremendous mid-season going into late-season draws particularly in states that allow you to run bush hogs through your cornfield. That's mm. a cheat. It is. I mean, you want you want to have an absolute blast of a sit? Go ahead and mow a quarter acre of corn, set a ground blind on one end of it that exact same day and get ready that night. It doesn't even take days. You get ready for that afternoon sit because it is going to be stupid um mowing corn is just ridiculous and you can do all sorts of tricks with that type of stuff as i said you got to have deep pockets to be talking about the type of stuff i am now because this is just burning money but you go ahead and you have a cornfield on your ground you have woods on both sides of that cornfield create you know just go ahead and drive your atv through that cornfield from one side to the other once Make it so that that's coming out 20 yards, that those trails are coming out 20 yards from those stands on both sides of that cornfield. You're going to have an awful lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> just that simple. Those deer are going to be tra- they're going to be feeding on that trail that you just drove down with your ATV, and they are going to be traveling that trail. Have you ever tried to cross the cornfield against the rows with a stand on your back? Because <laughs> if you are, you realize what that buck's going through. <laughs> right. Good call. <laughs> you do, you do something like that, and that is, is a, that's almost not fair. Um, same with the mowing corn stuff. Um, <clears throat> I'll be honest. Late season, I'm not afraid to. Uh, I well, for food plot stuffs, when it comes to late season, I'm really relying on corn, soybeans, and brassicas. Brassicas are where I, I use a lot more brassicas than corn and soybeans. Now, when it, here's what I'm doing, though, in the corn, soybeans, and brassicas. On the corn and soybeans, as soon as they start yellowing, I am taking three parts cereal rye, one part bin oats. And by bin oats, I mean cheap feed oats. Um, mixing it together, and that's three parts cereal rye, one part bin oats, and I am top seeding it into the corn or soybeans um, once they're once they start to yellow at about a hundred pounds an acre. Okay. You can either just use a hand seeder, which you're going to be doing a lot with, or an ATV seeder. If you can go ahead and have it just throw in one direction, you can go along the edge, throw throw your uh, throw your cereal rye out into the standing corns and beans, and then if it's yours, if you want, you can go ahead and cut ten rows in and repeat while you're driving down some corn and soybeans. Um, <clears throat> on the brassicas, I'm waiting for the brassicas to get eh, four, six, eight, eight inches tall, right around there. And then I'm just going through them, and I'm top seeding 100 pounds of three-part cereal rye, one-part bin oats, right onto the ground, preferably before rain, um, before a nice long day-soaking rain. Um, But now what I've done is I not only have that corn, those soybeans, 
soybeans or that brassica as these these deer are hammering and hammering and hammering away at that corn well when the corn's gone don't worry you got cereal rye and oats to eat same on the soybeans same on the brassicas so you go ahead what i'm trying to do is i'll be brutally honest with you virtually every property i manage i'm offering clover i'm offering brassicas and i'm offering cereal rye and oats between those those three that that right there can handle all my planting needs now when i'm getting into more long-term management for people with really deep pocket type stuff now i'm also buying back uh buying back some corn and beans from the farmers because they're actually not farming their ground. They're leasing out their farm rights. And any listener who is in that situation and you control that ground, write in your lease that you have the ability to buy back within reason whatever crops you want from that farmer for their input costs. So you're leasing them that 40-acre field if you want to take five acres of corn back from them, you do not charge them rent on that five acres, and you charge them exactly what they cost. It costs them to put that seed in the ground, not a cent more. If you do not write that into your agreement, what these farmers want to do is, oh, of course I will sell you back this grain, and I will sell it to you at the market value that I will would be able to sell the yield from oh no 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 they don't need to make money off you in these regards and i've yet to meet a farmer that if i did this up front proactively they weren't willing to do it but you do it afterwards say hey yeah what do you think about selling me that that grain down there for 300 bucks instead of 3000 that you, you wait till that point and your farmer probably isn't going to be quite as reasonable with you. Um, and on those bigger farms, honestly, alfalfa. Alfalfa really is a tremendous early season draw. Another really good early season draw is uh, um, uh, the tillage radishes. Those tillage radishes are actually a real good a real good early season draw as well and they also are helping the beautiful part about the cereal rye and the tillage radishes is they're both helping your dirt out a whole heck of a lot the tillage radish is breaking up the hard pan um, you're not going to get these 24 inch tillage radishes generally speaking when you're planting in September okay but you know you go ahead and you're planting them in a <laughs> in late August, early September, you're get in the right spots with the right soil fertility. You can easily get a 12 to, eh, on a good day, 16-inch tillage radish. And that's breaking up your hard pan. Whereas the cereal rye, what that, that cereal rye is the triticale may rival it as well. It's, triticale is actually a, it's got cereal rye. It's, I'm not going to go down that road. But uh, cereal rye is the best soil builder out there there is. It goes ahead and kicks kicks a very, very, very deep root system, which adds a ridiculous amount of organic matter to the soil, which ends up becoming essentially the soil's sponge. 
amongst other things, for holding and retaining water uh, and minimizing runoff. At the same time, it is mining potassium, or uh, it's mining K and P. Uh, I'm sorry, N and P from deep within the dirt and bringing it up closer to the surface where plants such as clovers and the shallow brassicas, shallower rooted plants can go ahead and utilize it as well. I think maybe there's an answer in there somewhere. Oh, that was awesome, Steve. No, that was great. My notes are my notes. My notes are running off the page here. Put it that way. <laughs> Good. Now, Steve, we talked a lot about everything going right and and setting ourselves up for success. You've written about hunting sins and problem prevention. Maybe walk us through some habitat things to avoid, and then get into some hunting sins that we should avoid. Um, habitat, the biggest thing is don't freak out. Um, when it comes to food plots, your food plot ain't coming up. Oh, geez, we're all going to die. The world's going to end. I'm going to go home and beat the wife because <laughs> I'm in such a bad mood. Uh, or the wife's going to go come home and beat me because she's in such a bad mood. Um, and obviously I'm being as sarcastic as I humanly possibly can when I say that. Um, <sighs> cereal rye is a diaper. It really is. You go ahead and you plant that brassicas that don't work. You plant, or here, you go ahead. You start your season. I'm gonna, I'm gonna plant soybeans. I got some from pheasants forever for virtually nothing. So I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna plant these soybeans. And oh, geez, yeah, I got about what I paid for. That's a horrible stand. Don't worry about it. Let's go ahead and wait till fall. In that case, so okay. <sighs> doesn't work out worth it. You know what? Come fall, I'm going to go ahead and plow it up, uh, turn it over, and I'm going to plant brassicas. Okay? Plant brassicas, no rain. Dang it, a bare weak stand got wiped out right. Uh, no worries. I'll go ahead and top seed that with cereal rye. You almost always have yet another thing you can... Now, once the beautiful part about cereal rye is if it ain't frozen, that stuff can germinate. If it ain't frozen, that stuff can grow, okay, um, <clears throat> versus versus other plantings where, you know, it freezes out, it's dead. No, cereal rye only goes dormant, okay. So you can get it to germinate far later into the year than most other plantings, and it will grow. You get an Indian summer in January where it thaws for a couple weeks, guess what? That cereal rye is growing. Now, um, <clears throat> that's the... That, that's a big deal right there, and I'll be honest with you, I got so off track, I forgot what we're even talking about. Uh, no, you're good. We're just trying to uh, cover some sins oh, and problem sins. prevention. Yeah, so so don't don't freak out over your soybeans. Don't freak out over your brassicas. You don't have to freak out until it gets to a until it gets to too late to even grow um, to grow cereal rye. But even then. The biggest thing that that people, Iowa, you're talking the richest egg land there humanly possibly is in this world, and we're talking, man, let's talk food plot. No, let's talk woody browse, because I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're in the richest egg ground in the world or the, or the UP of Michigan. Woody browse is a staple for these animals. Really? 
realize that when it comes to, if you want to do the most good for your whitetail health, the very most good is a make it so your make it so your deer numbers are sitting at right around 50% of the carrying capacity of that habitat. Okay, carrying capacity is the maximum number of deer that ground can sustain. Everybody wants max. Max is horribly bad because when you're at max carrying capacity, these deer are hanging on literally by a thread. And at the same time, for every birth, there has to be a death because that habitat flat out cannot support any more deer. And at the same time, what ends up happening is all of their preferred food sources get hammered into oblivion. I mean, just slaughtered. That oak seedling is gone the second it can go. But don't worry. Don't worry. The uh, um, <clears throat> the Osage Orange, that which doesn't mean much to Michigan and Wisconsin hunters, but means everything to Illinois and Missouri and Iowa and Ohio and Indiana hunters, that Osage Orange is going to make it just fine. And you know why that Osage Orange is going to make it just fine? Because it offers absolutely virtually no nutritional value whatsoever to those whitetails. It is referred to as starvation browse, meaning that hmm. it takes them more energy to actually break down that food than they're able to get caloric benefits from. Okay. Um, having high, too high, there's a reason these DNRs and states state wildlife departments, and yes, I do think they take it too far, but there's a reason they freak out about high deer numbers, because high deer numbers literally ruin the habitat. It destroys all the preferred browses while allowing all the starvation browses to flourish. So what ends up happening is the deer numbers get higher and higher and higher. The habitat gets worse and worse and worse. One way it's coming down, it's coming down hard. Uh, and but the catch is, is as the hab and that gives a ch the habitat a chance to rebuild itself. It's nature's way of it's nature's way of ensuring the survival of her species. Um, but the catch is, is that it never comes back as well as what it was because every time you are you're pushing max carrying capacity, the starvation browses are allowed to thrive and take over, making it that much harder for now those oak seedlings to make it up to that mat of icky competition. By actually having your deer at at 50% of the carrying capacity of that habitat, you can harvest every bit as many deer as you can at 100% carrying capacity The only because now those does, their fawning success rate is so much higher and their natural mortality rate of all deer is so much lower. Okay, And the difference, though, isn't in the number of deer you can harvest, it's the health of those deer. They are actually enjoying life so much more because for the love of God, I have no idea for as much as we talk about everything habitat, why we don't talk about social stress at all. Social stress levels within whitetails is no different than that poor picked on kid back in high school who every time he or she walked down the hall was literally terrified 
because all because all the bullies were sitting there giving them grief all the time. Thankfully, thankfully, most of the younger people these days, I don't think can hopefully relate to what I'm saying, but the people my age sure can. Now, um, <clears throat> the amount of stress that caused that kid caused many of them to do a lot of really, really, really self-destructive, stupid stuff. The exact same thing occurs in the whitetail world in a weird way. There is social stress within the whitetail community big time. Um, I'm going to use a slightly, I mean, I hope this is an off-color, but I'm not sure if it is anymore. Um, it's kind of like inner-city gangs. Your family groups out there, each family group has their own turf, their own area that they claim is theirs. We always we talk over and over and over about bucks and all the competition between bucks. Never anything about a family group. Okay, there is dominance within those family groups, just like there is within the buck community. The and when your deer population is overly populated, you can see it play out so crystal clearly because the does and fawns keep coming out earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier to feed because they have to. They are the subordinate groups, the ones that are down at the lower end of the spectrum. They have to come out early because as soon as the next group comes out, they're booting their butts off. Now, um, and the stress levels this creates for whitetails is just ridiculous. And I'm sorry for taking us off on this tangent, but we, we, we never talk about it. We don't. So one of the biggest mistakes we can make right out the right out of the gate is to believe that more deer is better when we are under 50 percent carrying capacity we definitely want more deer we want to lay the heck off the does when we are over 50 percent carrying capacity we want to go ahead and try to improve the quality of our habitat while reducing deer numbers by shooting does the worst thing you can do is sit there and get the mindset that Every year I got to go out and shoot those. I got to kill those, kill those, kill those, kill those, kill those baloney. There are pockets of this world that actually require that, and there are large pockets that don't. I used to manage an area in, in uh, northern northern uh, Minnesota where there should have been there should have been around thirty to forty deer per square mile in this area due to the quality of the habitat. It was low single digits, and yet absolutely everyone was given the option of having up to five doe tags. Wow. They were being their own worst enemy, killing as many does as they, because they were way, way, way under population goals. You know, there is not a one-size-fits-all for answer to any of this stuff. And before you go ahead and swallow the whole, i got to kill those, go out there and prove it. Inspect your habitat. You don't have to be a deer expert to be able to figure this stuff out. The deer will tell us virtually everything we need to know. When you're going around your habitat in spring, before spring green up, look at the trees that the deer are eating. Now, this does not apply to areas that overwinter migration is occurring. Uh, to the you know, there's you look at the up. You guys are from Michigan. The UP of Michigan, you have deer migration every year for the majority of it. The 
upper, lower peninsula of Michigan has overwinter uh, yarding activity going on virtually every year. The, it doesn't work in those types of spots. Okay? I'm talking about areas where the deer spend their entire year in this general area. Okay? Go out there in the spring, look at what the deer have been eating all winter long. But the trees that they eat the buds off the most, guess what? That's what they like the most. Okay? The tree, and I'm talking percentage-wise, not 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 numbers. I mean, if if every single if every single staghorn sumac you see out there is nipped off, oh, huh? That's probably a preferred browse. It is, by the way. Um, whereas, if if virtually none of the buckhorn is browsed, well, that's probably not a preferred deer browse, which it ain't. Where you get in trouble is ground where everything is decimated. Okay. When everything's decimated, you know right off the bat, I gotta kill those. I gotta kill those because my habitat cannot support this. Okay. Um <clears throat> once you start getting to the point where you've got more and more stuff left over in spring, start noting which species are hit the hardest. Those are the ones they like the most. If if I'm sitting there with 50% or more of those buds that those deer can easily reach still available, I, I don't have too many deer. If I've got 20% or less of those buds, of the, the trees that they're telling me they really like to eat, that they can reach available, that tells me I need to shoot some does because they are literally destroying my habitat. Don't buy anybody who just comes to you and tells you that you need to shoot does, you shouldn't shoot does. No, that answer, for me, it changes every year on the grounds I manage. Now, um, some areas, it's not going to change every year, but it is going to change sometime, most likely, and frankly, there is not one answer for all this stuff on that. It just plain isn't, and all we're told is to shoot does. We're never, ever told when not to. There are a whole bunch of times when not to shoot does. Um, there's no one food source out there that goes ahead and gives us everything we want, so offer a whole bunch. Um <clears throat> If you want to do the very most for the health of your whitetails, look at what the seasonal low point of food is and address that. For us, you know, me and you guys, we're talking we're talking winter. Winter our winters, because we get real winters, are at the seasonal low point for food on the whitetails. In in our case, they run a negative energy balance. The overwhelming majority of northern deer run a neg negative energy balance all winter long. That's where that cereal rye comes into play again. Um, John, Michigan's own, John J. Azoga, who, I'll tell you what, he's one of the few people that when he tells me something, I do not question it, because he rarely tells you something definitively. He, he puts stipulations on darn near everything. But... Um, <clears throat> He did research that proved that 
whitetails can actually survive for approximately 60 days without eating a single bit of food. Wow. The problem is, is right around 30 days is the tipping point. Once they get over 30 days without food, it doesn't matter what you give them for food anymore. They're not coming back. Okay. Um, but they can make it almost a full 30 days without eating a darn thing and still survive. What ends up happening over winter is that negative energy balance keeps ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking away at essentially those 30 days. Okay. Now you come to spring. We're all so darn worried about what our winters were like. Our springs are what kills more deer, generally speaking, than our winters. A late spring green-up, those deer, they are been straddling that line all this time. Snow, snow melt is here. Glory days. Wait a minute. Now it gets cold and nothing happens for another month. That's when you lose a lot of deer. That's where that cereal rye stuff really helps you out. And focusing on your woody brows. Because no matter what happens, you go ahead and create a lot of uh, a surplus of quality woody brows, your deer are going to survive darn near every and anything. But about the only other thing I can throw in here off the top of my head is do not, do not fall into the trap of thinking that cookie cutter approaches are going to work best for you. They aren't. Um, what worked out great for your neighbor may work out fantastic for you as well or may be an absolute, utter, dismal failure. And now, if you want to talk state to state, that, that's UP of Michigan. I challenge you to come up with a crop to plant that the deer don't go nuts for. But I can promise you a whole bunch of those crops, you take them down to a, you take them down to <clears throat> around, uh, <clears throat> around, oh geez, I'm trying, anywhere in southern Michigan. And a whole bunch of those crops that were at, at Lansing, you, you, you do something like that around Lansing. A whole bunch of those crops that were unbelievably attractive in the UP, yeah, the deer aren't even going to look at them. Because <laughs> so much of it is, what is my alternative? Everybody wants to know what the favorite food for whitetails is. There isn't a favorite food. It's the favorite food is whatever the best alternative I have available today is. And hopefully I gave you an answer in there somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's some great points about some of the things that we never talk about and never think about. So I appreciate you going into the detail on that. So maybe yeah. lead, us into, lead, lead us into some hunting sins now that we're getting closer to season and some problem preventions there. One of the biggest, one of the biggest things I see people there, I'll back up for a second here. Perhaps the best learning experience of my entire career was working for those outfitters. Because outfitters' clients, one thing I learned real fast is I've never went on an outfitted hunt. Okay, so and not I just never have. I I get into to me shooting. I this is gonna come.
shooting that deer isn't isn't the thrill. You know, that's the end result. To me, the thrill is how can I go ahead and put myself within 20 yards of a buck I want to shoot that has no idea I'm there. And so because of that, I've never done the outfit uh, thing. But the thing that did surprise me is the majority of outfitting clients, at least from when I was doing this, just regular people, just regular blue-collar people that are struggling to save enough money to go on a dream hunt. And many of them, and hey, it was me, although not on guided hunts, but for my own hunts, um, went ahead and scrimped and saved every bit of vacation time they possibly could to be able to pull this off. And now they happen to show up and it's October 15th and it's 78 degrees out and sunny. That really stinks. But they really don't care because this is their dream hunt. And you're supposed to actually make this happen for them. And when you get anywhere from, because I would consult for three to five outfitters a year, you got anywhere from 100 to 300 people telling you what you're doing wrong each year, you best have yourself some thick skin and you best be listening because they're going to they're gonna teach you a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and one of which was that it is never, I mean, I'm not saying there's not an, an exception out there somewhere, but it is almost never the case that that best stand for opening day is that best stand for the entire season. This all goes back to the studying deer thing that I was talking about to begin with. When you study deer and learn deer, you will understand that not only their habitat, but their physiology themselves itself as well is going through dramatic changes over fall, over deer season. Okay. As those changes occur, the things that are most important to them are changing as well. And that even even applying just simply to food, you know, going into fall, protein, 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 baby, that is huge. I want to, especially for Mr. Big, he wants to get as strong as he possibly can because I'm about ready to put myself, my body through hell. Um <clears throat> And then afterwards, geez, I've just looked, uh, your mature buck actually loses on average 25 to 30% body weight during the rut. I mean, think about that for a little bit. In a little bit over a month, that animal is dropping 25 to 30% of its body weight. Now, that's that's impressive. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, that, that's, that is utter hell on them. But so once they get done with that, hmm, it sure is not hard to understand that protein and muscle building isn't what they're after now. Now it's recovery. Now I need carbs and fats. Okay. So you got their their nutritional needs changing. You've got all these. You got their testosterone rising over the course of season, which is essentially the gas that drives that buck's engine, which make inspires him to move and fight more and want to breed even more. Um, <clears throat> Each stage of season has stand locations that are going to work better for them. Early season, it's all about food in one way, shape, or form. Okay. Once you start getting into October, now 
the scrape phase is starting to heat up, but I don't pay a bit of attention to the to hunting scrapes until you get to that last week of October. I've got those stands already set and prepped from months and months ago. Now it gets to that last week of October. I'm going to slip in. I'm going to hunt those scrapes, and Mr. Big has no idea that I'm there because I haven't done anything to tip my hand before this. Okay, then we start getting into November. At that point, I'm hunting does. I'm hunting does because what are the bucks hunting? The bucks are hunting does. You know, it only makes sense for me to hunt does and hunt concentrations or funnels between them. Um, and one thing I will point out that I think is a bunch of baloney we've been fed forever, and that is you can't pattern bucks during the rut. Well, I'm going to step back even a step further and say that the definition that most people are trying to convince you of, of how they pattern that buck is baloney. They do not know anywhere near as much as they are pretending to know about that buck. I know this for a fact because there's been a whole bunch of TV hunts from stands that I personally have set up on, set up myself, with outfitters that I sat there and watched these outfitters showing these people the pictures only to see them on TV talk about how they've been hunting this buck for three years and they've been doing this and doing that and doing this other thing. And it's like, oh, I happen to know that not a single word you said is true. All you did was climb up in the tree that you were told to climb up in an accident and didn't blow the shot at the buck that walked by that you were told to shoot. Um, this, this People... People try so hard to dazzle you with BS, it's not even funny. Okay, um, To me, patterning a buck is nothing more than to having a pretty good idea of what one, one or more of his daylight tendencies are. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay, um, <clears throat> During the rut, how does a mature buck find does? He goes to their he goes to the concentrate the areas they're concentrated in. A mature buck tends to scent check that from a distance. Then your immature buck goes barreling into that doe bedding area and chasing every doe around he possibly can. While that Im- that mature buck is already down to the next doe bedding area, ready and scent checking it from a distance. Um, <clears throat> that's not a pattern. Because to me, that's a pattern. And I'll be honest with you, I have better luck patterning bucks during the rut than I do at any other time. Um, Because I know darn well that Mr. Big knows where my doe concentrations are. And I am supremely confident that when he wants breeding opportunities, he's going to visit those doe concentrations. Hmm. Where are does during the day? They're during midday, mostly. They're in doe bedding areas. Huh. You think Mr. Big is going to check that doe bedding area during midday? Where are the does in the afternoon and evenings? Huh. They get up and go to food sources. Do you think Mr. Big, when he wants to, when he wants to find an estrus doe, is going to head to those same food sources? And if that is not a pattern, I have no idea what the heck is. Can all sorts of things kick him off his pattern? Of course. Just like that farmer going out and cutting wood the day before or on opening day of season, you know, set up between where his food sources and his bedding areas, huh? I bet you he's probably not going to walk by the farmer out there cutting cutting wood at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, 
all yeah, all sorts of things can mess up a pattern. But they do every different phase of season. So anyway, um, during the rut, I'm mostly I, I am hunting funnels, separating doe groups. I'm hunting doe bedding areas, and I'm hunting their food sources. Uh, then you get to late season. Late season in the mornings. I'll actually still go out some, and in the mornings I hunt doe bedding areas that have a good number of fawns. Because Mr. Big realizes that, oh, those fawns, they're coming into estrus as soon as they hit certain physical and physiological thresholds. So your healthiest does, which have the healthiest fawns, even in Michigan, not so much the UP, but lower Michigan, a good percentage of those are going to get bred that first year. Even in the UP of Michigan, John Azoga told me that uh, that as many as 10% of the doe fawns are bred on ideal growth years in the UP of Michigan. You get down, you get down to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, <coughs> Missouri, Iowa, those states, you're looking at the majority of doe fawns breeding that very first year. Hmm. Okay. But because it take because they have to hit physical and physiological growth thresholds to do it, they come in later. This whole second rut we've been told about when we were kids, it in my experience, it absolutely positively is not these does that are being missed by bucks, being bred the first time around, absolutely no. Most Nubbin bucks can breed an adult doe, and that adult doe, when she's an estrus, she will stand for absolutely anything. Um, <clears throat> what ends up making up this quote-unquote second rut are the doe fawns that are coming into estrus. And we don't know exactly when they're coming into estrus. You know, I for years I did this trick that somebody told you want to you want to nail the peak of the second rut. Take the peak breeding date in November and add 28 days because that peak breeding date is when all these does are going to get skipped because so many of them have come into estrus that they just all can't get bred. So now, 28 days later, they're going to cycle back in, and you have any idea how dang many early no, early Decembers I have wasted trying to hunt the rut? <laughs> now, um, <clears throat> now, I have never seen, the. although these days now, well, I'm, uh, the last few days, I'm years I'm seeing all sorts of craziness and it's because the weather patterns are so messed up. But um, the second rut, generally speaking, is actually made up of does, doe fawns, coming into estrus that first time. So, going into ah, about as deep as mid-December, I'm not afraid to continue to morning hunt those doe bedding areas. It's not as fast and frenzied of activity, generally speaking, as it is on November 10th. But every so often, you do catch it when that doe, that doe fawn comes into estrus, and when it is, that is the most fun you're ever going to have. Because every darn mature buck in that area knows it, and she is it. Um, <clears throat> but outside of that, late season to me is all about uh, 
all about sticking to hunting food sources. The mistake, which I actually, actually didn't forget the question this time. <laughs> the mistake I see so many people making is on opening day going, to, going straight for their hot rut stand. Why? That stand isn't hot yet. All you're doing is risking exploding it. Match your stands for the phase of season and hunt those stands when they are at their peak. Not before, because every single time we go into the woods, we are risking educating deer. That's why I place such a high... And we educate way more deer after we left, I believe. We educate way more deer after we leave the woods than we ever do while we're in it. Because our odors stay behind, depending on the conditions, for for between 24 to... uh, between 24 up to 72 hours later, they can actually still pick up the odor of my breath on that leaf that I passed. Wow. Because of that type, you wait to strike when the iron is hot and make it count that first time. That makes it seem like we got to sit around waiting for for November to hunt or No. The iron is hot a different place during early season than it is during the scrape phase, than it is during the peak breeding phase, than it is during the post-rut. Now, go ahead and hunt the stand that's hot for that phase, and do not burn out the stands that haven't heated up before they have a chance to get good. That is one of the biggest mistakes I think people make right out the bat. The next is they do not enter the season with a game plan. I'm just going to go hunt, and that's fine. But what happens when? What happens when the property that I'm hunting, the farmer decides to have it logged? The owner decides to have it logged during season. What do I got? The, The thing that somebody told me many, many years ago that I have never forgot because it is a foundational truth when it comes to hunting, if you do not control the ground you hunt, you're going to lose it. You don't know when, but you're going to lose it. Always have other places to hunt. Spend every bit, I spend more time, I spend way more time every year trying to find places on public land to hunt than I ever spend hunting public land. um, And that may seem like a waste, but it sure has saved my bacon more than one or two or three or five seasons. Because when all of a sudden this place that I had to bust that gully to get to the other side, and man, there ain't anybody in this world that's stupid enough to do that besides me. I'm going to have this to myself 100%. And then I get back there an hour before first light on November 4th, and as just as the light is starting to come, oh, who's that idiot walking through over there? And, oh, there's somebody over here. And, well, I guess this place I thought I had all to myself ain't quite so all to my... Oh, there's a private access road on the other side that all you have to do is walk 50 yards to get in on that I didn't realize was here? Well, that explains why this spot ain't so great. (laughs) But, I've got five other spots to go, so no big deal. 
No. Um, always, always have more spots to hunt than you're ever going to hunt. You you take that approach, and you're not going to be sitting there on November 1st pulling your hair out because you got nowhere to go. Um, when you have an opportunity at a whitetail, take the very first ethical shot you possibly can and do what you need to do to make it happen. I will never forget this one buddy of mine that I set up in a stand. It was a ladder stand with a great, it was on the back side of a huge oak, um, and you shoot around the oak, and I left a great big branch across the side you have to shoot out. The reason I left it there is because mm, you have to step out from the tree to make the shot. Well, that's a little bit extra cover, and you know, depending on where the deer is, that branch can be in my way. But there's absolutely no reason I can't bend my knees to shoot underneath it or get up on my tiptoes a little bit to make the shot happen. Now, worst case, honestly, I've been in situations where I've climbed on top of the seat of the tree stand to be able to get a shot through. You can imagine my disappointment when the buddy that I sent in to shoot this five-and-a-half-year-old stud eight point came back and all excited. I saw him, Steve. I said, oh, are we going to get him? Oh, no, I didn't shoot. Oh, he didn't come close. Oh, no, no, he came through right at the edge, right where you said he would. Oh, why didn't you shoot? Oh, you, you need to cut that branch off, Steve. That was right in the way. Do you think you could have squatted down or got up on your tiptoes and shot over it? And the look on his face just went slack. Oh, man. I mean, find a way. <laughs> you can do all sorts. I mean, don't, don't, don't endanger your safety. But just because you can't, when you stand up and turn and look in that direction, there's no hole, doesn't mean you can't raise and lower your position simply by bending your knees. Be creative. Make it happen. When that buck is going through at 100 yards and he's not coming over, it just plain ain't. If he's on a doe, I'm not going to do this because I'm hoping the doe will go ahead and chase him around. But when he's when he's at 100 yards, he's not coming through and he's headed the other way, bah! hopefully I stop him. If I stop him and he's not coming in, then meh, give him a couple doe calls. If he's not coming in then, just pinch your, pinch your lower lip to your upper teeth and spit all over yourself. If he doesn't come in there, grab the antlers. Now, don't grab them when he's staring at you. But what I'm saying is, at this point, what do you got to lose? Right. He's 100 yards away. He's headed the other way. He's not spooked. But one way in, okay, so he doesn't. He keeps going. And... You know what? You just heard that, wow, there, there's, you just figured out why he kept going because he's fighting. He's just down over the ridge there and you can hear him going at it with a, why are you still up in your tree stand? Why, why, as soon as you hear that, why aren't you getting down, going over there and killing him? Because he ain't worried about you now. now be creative. 
we we are both blessed and cursed today with all the information we have out there. When I was a kid, I used to go to the Barron Library day after day after day after day to read the one book they had on hunting. That was it. Okay, um, that ain't the case no more. Now, if you do a little bit of research, you can have an entire an entire formula for hunting the season laid out before your eyes, and that is a great thing. But do not be afraid to go ahead and fall flat on your face. Try junk. One one of the bucks I'm looking at right now as we speak, I walked up to late season up to 20 yards away from him and shot him when he stood with a bow, shot him when he graciously stood up at 20 yards from his bed and and posed broadside for me. Wow. You don't try stupid stuff. It's never going to work. We we are so focused on being cool and looking like these cool guys on television, and I'm being one of them myself. I can tell you that 90% of it's BS on TV. Um, They fake so darn much junk on TV, I could spend three hours telling you all about it. Okay. Don't worry about being cool. Worry about going out there and having fun and doing crazy, stupid stuff, and you're going to have a lot more fun. Great advice, great advice there. And and by the way, that that snort wheeze you just did was was pretty awesome. I don't think mine's mine's as of that quality. Can we hear that one more time? All you do is take your lower lip, pinch it to your upper teeth, and yep. literally spit all over yourself. <laughs> now that is not going to work with a buck. That's not interested in getting in a fight or one that just had his butt handed to him. What you're okay. doing with that, what that right there says is, I want to fight you. Right. No. And if it's the man, oh, it's going to work great more often than not. If it's not the man, well, there's just as good of a chance he's running the other way. Not because <laughs> you scared him, but because he doesn't want to get his butt kicked. And another just fun thing to do sometime is watch... Watch when you've got an immature buck approaching a scrape tentatively. At that point, take out your grunt call and just go, His reaction is quite fun. (laughs) I've actually had him jump straight up in the air three feet, hit the ground, and... Wow. (laughs) And, And that's kind of... We take this stuff so incredibly seriously... That we're afraid to... Uh, here, I'll tell you this, the biggest mistake to avoid you possibly can. And that is when you take your six-year-old daughter out turkey hunting with you. And every single time you call, she starts giggling. Don't sit there and turn to her like I did. And go, shh, Beth, if you do that, we're not going to see any turkeys. And then you do it again and she starts giggling again and she's trying so hard not to... No, what you do is you turn and look at her and say, Beth, you want to try calling? Mm-hmm. And she gets this just look on her face like, oh, man, could I? I don't think I'm supposed to, but yeah, yeah, no, you go right ahead. And for the next God knows how long, you sit there and laugh your 
butt off without seeing a single turkey because every single one of them has ran the other way long ago. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with what that hunt's about at all. What that hunt's about is taking that six-year-old girl out turkey hunting with her dad. And now that she's 26 years old, 26 years old, she still talks about it to this day and how awesome it was. As opposed to, Beth, darn it, you need to stop right now or we're not going to get any turkeys. And then, 20 years later, she's talking about what an absolute jerk dad was that day. This stuff is supposed to be fun. Make it fun. As long as you're not doing anything illegal and unethical, the only thing you need to care one darn bit about is that you're having fun out there. Because this is your passion. Make it what you want it to be. Well said, Steve. Well said. I know I can uh, be a little guilty of that, you know, hush, hush, be quiet, or, or whatever, every now and then, too. And, you know, you're really, you're really kind of refreshing it for me and, and realize that the reasons why we do this. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that was well said. I think, um, I think we've, we've, you've been very respectful, um, uh, of us coming on here and, and, uh, you know, with your time, thank you so much. I have a, uh, a wrap up question. I like to ask a lot of our guests, uh, if you have time for one more. Yeah, Mike, do it. All right. What is your favorite type of tree? I know, it's mind-blowing, but I want to know what your favorite type of tree is when it comes to habitat or hunting, when you walk out in the woods or the field and you see that type of tree and you're like, oh, man, yeah, buddy. Who, who, who doesn't like great big old old white oaks? Yep. They are the coolest dang tree I've ever seen in my life for so many reasons. Not fun. And coincidentally, the only tree I've almost ever fallen out of. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> when I was putting a year, when I was a stupid kid. Uh, well, I, in my 30s, um, putting up a tree stand. <laughs> um, well, what, now now being in my 30s is a stupid kid. Don't worry. 20 years from now, being in my 50s will be a stupid kid. <laughs> oh, this is great. <laughs> uh, but th- there I am trying to put up a tree stand in this oak that, I mean, I brought brought a bunch of climbing sticks with all this stuff and climbing sticks were just starting to get to be popular ah there ain't no way you're getting a strap around that thing so i'm trying to hang on and put in screwing tree steps in this oak that has bark that i'm not exaggerating six inches thick so you got to cut off the bark then put in a screw in and you're i got about six feet off the ground Lost, uh, lost my balance and somehow barely hung on to the edge of the bark. Um, and all my tree stand equipment was straight below me, which you never should. Whenever you're putting up a tree stand, you set it off to the side. So if you fall, you don't fall right on the tree stand and climbing sticks. Oh, well, thankfully I didn't fall, but that would have been horrible. Um, but no, oaks. Big, big old white oaks, even with that that pucker factor experience there. <laughs> nothing. To me, nothing's got the allure like a great big act, great big old white oak out in the middle of nowhere. Very nice. Yeah, that that's probably our most popular, if I had 
had to guess, and, and with good reason. They're just majestic and, and beautiful, and, and you wonder the stories they could tell. You know, I, I have one on my oh. property that has seen it all, I'm sure. If for a second place would actually be white cedar, and I'll mention this specifically because I'm guessing you guys are are you know, pretty big in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and this huge for the huge for the UP. Um, white cedars are the only tree species known that a whitetail can survive the entire winter eating absolutely nothing but white cedar. They don't have to have white cedar to survive, but it is the one tree species known that they can survive exclusively on, and it is literally being wiped the heck out in the UP. Your wow. your over your over winter yards are hurting like you have like they have never in our lifetimes before, and this is going to be a price we pay years and years for many generations to come. Because that wow. is how. That's how those deer survive in the, those nasty winters in the UP is by migrating to those overwinter uh, yarding areas. And the majority of them are the, the the best overwinter yarding areas. Period. End of story. Are are white cedar thickets and logging is wiping them completely out up there. Logging and over maturity combination okay. between. That's super interesting. So that would be my fact. No, I, I'm glad you brought that up because we have not heard that yet, and that's the, that's why I asked this kind of random question. But you, you, we we learn a lot from this, and I mean, maybe I, the one thing I do know about white cedars, which is the same as like an arborvitae, is that correct? Uh, yes. Yep. Um, my friend Jason, he's been on the podcast here before. He they planted one on the edge of a food plot. And it ended up being a social hub for bucks. It was destroyed. It was eaten. It was raked. I'm talking a little four-footer they put in, you know. And I could not believe the amount of attention and activity that was on this white cedar. And it's, uh, yeah, have you ever seen anything like that? This is in southern yeah. Michigan, FYI. Yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. Well, no. One of the things you're going to see in a situation like that a lot, and just simply because of the way white cedars are, white cedars are uh, um, the way they grow and the way they get browsed. I do apologize. I while you were asking the question, and I suppose I probably shouldn't admit this, but I I will. Um, <laughs> my phone was dying. My phone was dying, so I was in the process of getting another phone. Oh, um, you're good. But I think I think I got the gist of it. I'm going to guess that a big part of the reason that there's a ridiculous amount of activity around it is because you can literally when when a when a white cedar is out by itself, you can literally make a scrape all the way around that thing, okay? which ends up uh, <clears throat> which ends up oftentimes happening. Okay, so they end up getting a bunch of scraping activity. I think this is just I could easily be wrong on this, but I think it's an aromatic issue in that white cedar and red cedar, my goodness, if a deer can rub it, they're gonna rub it. And oftentimes we end up seeing in the in those locations what are refer what are referred to as signpost rubs. And the only thing a signpost rub means is that this this tree gets rubbed every darn year. 
it doesn't mean anything more, anything less. But because it ends up getting rubbed every darn year, it ends up serving almost the same type of purpose as a scrape. Right. Or it's not it's not only serving the purposes, this is a chance for me to get out my aggressions and do a little advertising. But, oh, we can also deposit some chemical signals each time we pass here, and other deer will come over and inspect these chemical signals, and they will get the message that I'm sending them, and they may deposit a message for me to to interpret as, as well. Um, that tends to happen. I mean, it doesn't. It's not tree specific, but I have noticed that that tends to happen on cedar trees a disproportionate amount of times, and I think it's because both the red and white cedar give off a certain type of odor that they really like, but I could be completely wrong about that. And lastly, it's prime browse. Yeah. Add all that stuff together, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I, yes, I have seen many, frankly, when I'm, when I'm out shed hunting in the spring, I'm really scouting. And I'm pretending to shed hunt. I do the um, same thing. <laughs> I I do go ahead. Any cedar I see in the area, I'm checking them out because deer also love to bed underneath white and red cedars, um, both for the windbreak potential and as well as a nice little ceiling for them to protect them from precipitation and sun and that type of stuff. You are right about that. We have noticed the same things on, on some of our properties, some of our client properties. So that is uh, another another great tip. Steve, you have been awesome. Thanks so much for all your time today. Um, ah, it's just amazing. So much information. Is there anything you would like to say or cover before we uh, wrap this up? And uh, if not, how can we find you and follow along more? Um. The biggest thing that I don't do anywhere near enough is just say thanks. As I said to start all this stuff, I'm, I'm not. I. You are talking to somebody who was raised by a divorced mother, and I'm not complaining in any way, shape, or form. She was the greatest teacher, is the greatest teacher I have ever had in my life, and I have had it so much better than most of the friends I grew up with. It wasn't even funny, but still. I was, I grew up, my brother and I were raised by a single mother in northern Wisconsin. We didn't have two pennies to rub together growing up. I'm not supposed to be doing this junk. I, my, I, I said this on an offhand comment at the at last podcast I did, so I'm going to say it again because apparently it inspired some people. Um, I am my my homeroom teacher and wrestling coach back in high school had a twenty dollar bet if I'd even graduate high school. Okay. The only reason I'm doing this stuff is because people, your listeners have allowed me to. Now, thank you. I can't I can't promise to be able to repay something like that because I've lived my dream. But I can't promise you that anything I tell you, I'll actually believe. And I will go ahead and share whatever I can that I think will help you in any way, shape, or form, even if it makes me look bad. Because that is the very least I can do, because I don't live my dream if it isn't for all the people that are sitting there listening. Most of them don't even realize how much they've done for me. But there's pitifully few people that are actually hearing this who haven't empowered me to do this. And 
thank you. I, I, I don't say it enough, and those words ring hollow compared to what it actually has meant to me. But just trust me, that type of stuff is absolutely positively never lost on me. And because of that, I got a feeling of loyalty to the people that follow my work that is exceptionally strong. Perfect. And, I, and as far as as far as finding me, um, quite honestly, the best resource I can give you is the Facebook page. And I believe me, I hate Facebook as much as anybody else in this world. <laughs> All I do is I have a bookmark straight for my page. I go straight to that page. I make my post. I answer my questions, and then I leave. Good idea. The world is what we make it to such an extent. Now, um, it, it really is. On all now, there's limits, and different people can can assert more control over their lives than others. But really, this life is what we make it. And Facebook sure. doesn't have to be an icky, gross thing. You can go straight there, do your thing, and leave. I never check my wall ever because when I check my wall. That's when it gets disgusting. Yep. But mainly just thanks, and thanks to you guys, too. I, 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 the older I get, the more I appreciate people that are actually doing this for the right reason and every indication I have got as you guys are, and I appreciate that as well. Wow, no, thank you very much. Um, you know, we, we want to be like you when we grow up, and uh, this is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great You, you can great be podcast. far better than me. You can be <laughs> far better than me. Um, and and that, well, I will, I will wrap up with one last thought. Um, and it actually dovetails into what you just said. When I first started doing the TV end of things, um, the producer who wanted me to do the TV stuff told me that I needed to figure out who I wanted to be. What type of personality did I want to have on television? Be your own dang self, because you know what? Nobody in this world can be a better you than you, and that applies to absolutely everyone out there. I would, I would suck pathetically, horrifically badly if I tried to be anybody else, but nobody in this world can be me anywhere near as well as I can be. Well said. Well said. Good thing to keep in mind all the time. I appreciate your coming on, Steve, and sharing your time. And you're always so generous with your information and all your experiences. And I just wanted to tell you thank you. And uh, you always support our troops, and you're always mentioning people should do the same. And just appreciate everything that you bring to the table. I well, if you want to speak about the troops, I mean, man, if that doesn't apply to what I just said, I don't know what does. I, Amen. I I, I I never was in the service. And if it wasn't for all the people that were, I couldn't say that. I, no doubt. Yeah, we, we owe those gentlemen a debt that will, and their families, a debt, those gentlemen and women and their families, a debt that people like me will never, ever be able to repay. That's for dang sure. Amen. Steve, thanks again. We will be sure to give you the information when we when this goes live, and uh, we'll share it all over the place for you. So thank you so much. Hey, it really was my pleasure, guys, sincerely. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on. 
Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, Sound Barrier Hunting, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.